Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. In the United States, the Dobbs decision, Roe v. Wade, played a huge role in uh, the lack of Republican red wave. It was more, I suppose, of a bit of a pink tinge, a little bit of like sea foam that washed up rather than a wave. Uh, And that is just because it impacted on women's autonomy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Australian Politics. I'm Paul Karp, and I'm joined by... Amy Ramakis. And Josh Butler. And uh, we're doing an Ask Me Anything episode today. Uh, Political editor Catherine Murphy is away on the APEC uh, G20 ASEAN trip. Summit season. So the the kids are in charge. (laughs) Please bear with us. We've done our regular shout-out to get questions from readers, so thank you to everyone who sent in. Uh, And the first topic that we'll be discussing is about the change of government. So we had a few questions, one from Sue James, and this will be for everyone. Do you think that the ALP government risk being a victim of their own success? And I'm paraphrasing here. Do you think that the government is being seen as doing too much or too little? And we have one from Richard. Uh, Have you found it easier or harder to speak with and get answers from the current government compared to the previous government? So uh, how about, Josh, we start with you. Yeah, so on on the first one, I mean, you know, it's six months in. They've obviously done a lot and and, and quickly, but there are still, you know, a lot of challenges outstanding. There's some immediate ones and some longer-term ones that we still... Uh, I guess are waiting for the government to come up with some answers for or to at least tell us what they're going to do about it on gas prices and obviously there's some talk about, you know, what, what's going to happen with the future of the stage three tax cuts and the relationship with China. I mean, obviously there's been this meeting with uh, Xi over the weekend, oh, sorry, over the week, sorry, um, which we will probably talk about a bit later on, but, and, and that's huge success and, and progress. There's a long way to go. I mean, what are they going to do about AUKUS and the nuclear subs? I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what the person means about victim of their own success, but obviously there's been this huge flurry of activity and, and writing some ships that were listing and that sort of thing. But, you know, ask the question again in middle of next year, we might have a different answer for you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is absolutely, as Josh pointed out, a lot of answers still to come, um, particularly on gas prices. I think that's something that everybody is focusing on. But I think that uh, there was a lot of writing of ships that had to happen. And what else, What always seems to happen when you have a change of government is that the first year, 18 months, is spent sort of just 
fixing or re-examining or, you know, updating things that previous governments had done while also trying to rush through as much of an agenda as possible before you get into the next election cycle, which usually starts about 18 months into anybody's term. So you can kind of see why there is this sense of urgency with some of the things that the Albanese government is doing because they've spent 10 years in opposition and they've had all of these ideas that they've wanted to really get moving on and now is their chance. But I think you're going to start to see uh, them slow down probably a little bit uh, from when Parliament resumes again next year and that's just because I think they plan or they hope to be in government for at least two terms, and they're going to want to start staging out some of their agenda rather than sort of rushing it down everybody's throats. Yeah, I mean, in the policy areas I report on, they're very busy. I mean, there's an industrial relations bill, the National Anti-Corruption Commission bill, privacy bill, penalties, and they're going to introduce a whistleblower bill in the final sitting fortnight. I think it really depends whether your frame of reference is a set of things that you wanted them to do or the total amount that they're doing because the total amount that they're doing is lots and lots. But if you compare them to the pace of change that you wanted to achieve in a particular policy area, then then maybe you're feeling less good about it. Um, all right, passing to that second question about transparency, uh, do you think the new government is any more or less transparent than the previous government, Josh? Uh, well, you know, easier or harder to speak with. I mean, I think in a word, the answer would be yes. Um, uh, I'm sure you guys had a, had a similar sort of experience, but, you know, people from this Prime Minister's office have said to me a few times that they consider themselves pro-media as a starting point. I think for me personally speaking, things have been a little bit smoother. Um, I think a lot of journalists in Parliament um, found at times that people in the former coalition government, um, not just Morrison but further back, um, were bit more actively hostile to the media. Um, they would say it to your face. Um, I remember, and this is before I started at Guardian in a, in a different role, I remember one senior staffer in a, in, in a government um, saying to me, to my face, we don't like your publication, we'll give you some stuff, but we're not going to go out of our way to help you. Um, that was to my face on, my, I think, one of my first days in <laughs> uh, being being in that role. Um, so in a sense, I think, yes, I think things are not as hostile. There seems to be a bit of more active outreach and goodwill and that sort of thing. But this, I think, this sort of links back to the last question or the, 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 that first question, I think, a little bit. Um, there's been this huge flurry of activity and this government wants media to write and talk about it. They've got a lot of shiny new things to show off and there hasn't been a major crazy scandal yet. There's been, like, you know, obviously it's only six months, but... There's been no sacking, there's been no resignation, there's been no massive, huge blow-ups yet. You know, those things just inevitably do come at some point and I think things will start to change then. But, you know, things are obviously a bit calmer now. I think there's a, a bit more goodwill and people are willing to talk and they want to talk about stuff because they've got a lot to talk about. So I think things are definitely a bit uh, calmer and smoother than they were at the start of the year. I think that's probably a bit of a universal experience in this office. I mean, there were several offices <laughs> in the previous government who just basically, if they did return a uh, an inquiry, uh, would basically say, we don't talk to The Guardian. Uh, I certainly got quite a lot of that. I haven't had that from this government as yet, but as Josh points out, that it has been, you know, things that they want to talk about 
uh, things that they do want media coverage for. I think uh, it, it is always uh, good for journalists to remember that media advisors are not our friends. Friendly, not mm. friends, mm. is probably the best rule you can have with media advisors. And that's just because we're at cross purposes. A media advisor's job is to protect their boss and they will always work to protect their boss. And that means ministers and that means stopping you from getting information uh, that may show their boss uh, in not so positive a light. That's, that's their job. They are political staffers. We're not talking about public servants here. So as Josh said, the test will come when it's something negative uh, or, you know, there is some sort of scandal. And all you can do is do the same thing that you did with the previous government, which is keep asking the questions. But ministerial offices aren't the be-all and end-all for answers either. There's plenty of other ways to get answers. And if you don't have a minister's voice in every single story, well, that's on them. I will say, though, I am still having trouble getting some members of the opposition to comment on things. Uh, so some of that ill will towards the least <laughs> the Guardian seems to continue in some quarters of the opposition. And just picking up on that answer, Amy, I, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a bit that um, you, you can't assume that just because it's a progressive publication, you know, the progressive side will always, you know, be more more favourable in, in terms of access mm. and, and coverage. Absolutely. I mean, we talk to everyone, plenty of conservatives talk to us. In, in the new government, I think they are, they are very available, but that could just be a honeymoon thing where, mm. you know, they're establishing themselves and also a lot of their media is about how bad everything that their predecessors did and, you know, they yeah, could exactly. talk about that till the cows come home. But there are, there are already a few, a few grumbles. I mean, you know, I, I asked Anthony Albanese about uh, National Cabinet Minutes and got a, a one-word answer and... Uh, some some colleagues at other outlets grumbled that Tony Burke only held a press conference on the IR bill after it had passed the House when they wanted to grill him about it a bit sooner than that. So, I don't think you can you can make too sweeping a generalisation on on a point like that. Mm, governments will always work to protect themselves. That's that's what they do. Uh, the next question is for Amy, uh, and it's from Lisa Johnson, and she asks, it appears in the US the Conservatives have been sideswiped by young and educated women in the midterms, and certainly Conservative think tanks here have labelled young women enemy number one. Is there any sign that the Liberal National Party has any intention of listening to women at all? Uh, I mean, yes, obviously, because they'd be foolish to ignore 50% of the electorate. Uh, at the same time, it's not exactly the same story as what we have seen uh, happen in the United States. And part of the reason for that is because of mandatory voting in Australia, we do tend to have a little bit more of middle of the road conversations rather than what you see happen in America, where extremes from both ends have to be as extreme as possible in order to kind of motivate people to vote. Uh, and in the United States, the Dobbs decision, Roe v. Wade, played a huge role in uh, the lack of Republican red wave. It was more, I suppose, of a bit of a pink tinge, a little bit of like sea foam that washed up rather than a wave. Uh, and that is just because it impacted on women's autonomy. But we still did see um, a lot of more of black women come out and vote in the United States and a lot more Gen Z women come out and vote for Democrats. White women 
in key states still tended to support the Conservatives, and that and that's that's the American story. In Australia, we are seeing uh, the Liberals trying to make more of a play uh, to bring women back into their tent. Uh, Susan Lee has been leading the charge there, the we are listening to you, you don't necessarily have to vote teal, you have a place in our party as well. Whether that is successful or not, I think it's going to it's going to take more time and that's just because the Liberal Party is still working out what it is, who it is, and who it wants to speak to. And until it does that, it's not going to really have a a strong narrative to be able to say, okay, here are our messages. Still working on that. I I was just going to joke that it's the incel reading of the election where where people think that it's easier to to put a ring on it uh, put a ring on, on on single women's fingers rather than, like, fix up their policies so that they uh, appeal to a, a wide range of people. Yeah, well... There, 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 there was such a backlash to that piece as well. Uh, you know, a lot of um, young women in the Liberal Party, you know, writing op-eds and talking about that particular piece and there was a whole lot of... Uh, it, it, it's Simon Birmingham, the, the um, what is he, Shadow Foreign Minister, um, uh, shared one of those articles and said, you know, good on you to the young woman who'd written at a young government staffer. So, um, you know, it's definitely not a uniform opinion, <laughs> I think, in the, in the party. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I think it does show where how, how, how far they start to go in figuring out what the Liberal Party says to people in 2022 or 2025 or whatever the next election will be. Yeah, and one of the most annoying, like, bits of that Nick Cater piece was that it wasn't even original. It literally was what the Fox News pundits Mm, were talking about in response to the American midterms. They were saying, oh, look at the numbers. Conservative um, women voters are the ones who are married. It's a completely different system electorally. It's a completely different system in terms of what motivates people to vote. And it's a completely different scenario where you basically had Gen Z and women rising up in states just sort of saying, get your hands out of my uterus. That's not happening in Australia. I mean, we can have another conversation about changes we need to make to make abortion healthcare uh, more accessible in Australia, Mm. but it's not the Australian experience. So just, oh God, just on like the originality of it. I was like, for goodness sake, Nick Cater, can we just move on from this? We need a domestic culture war industry (laughs) instead of of being reliant on imports. That's what we we can do our own culture wars. We don't need to import them. Uh, next next topic, in, it does involve trade in a roundabout way. So, uh, so uh, for Josh, uh, Greg Tuck asks uh, regarding uh, Anthony Albanese's trips to summits and forums, including the G20, is there a hierarchy of such meetings that a prime minister needs to attend? Are there ones that they should delegate to ministers? Are they done for domestic political reasons or for, to benefit uh, politics in, an, in another country? Oh, yeah. I mean, sort of, yeah, I think sort of yes to all the above. I mean, some trips are bigger and some are smaller just on just the fact that they are, you know, ministers uh, are dispatched to the World Oceans Forum or the trade roundtables or whatever. You know, the Prime Minister doesn't always go to those sort of ones. But, yeah, the bigger ones, it, it is often on a case-by-case basis and it's really based on the politics of the day. You know, remember when Morrison maybe wasn't going to go to the last COP summit, there was a big uproar and he ended up going. You know, this time Albanese didn't go to the COP climate summit in Egypt, which has been going on for the last two weeks or so, Um, even though we do want to host a COP in a couple of years and he's been talking up, you know, climate change commitments from his government as being a major diplomatic 
Trump card. And instead, he stayed in Australia, knowing that he had to go to Asia this week for the the G20 and the APEC and other things. Um, if, if they're going to, to cop as well out of just an Egypt stop along that round the world trip, he might have been overseas for two weeks or more. Missed Parliament last week with the with the crucial IR bill going through that they're still negotiating on. You know, Paul, you've done. You know, more about this than I do. But, you know, Albanese also didn't go to the UN, the General Assembly in September. You know, Penny Wong went instead. Um, a lot of it is for political reasons. It might be that that week's busy or he's not going for some reason or he does go because it's a, you know, some political blow up sort of thing. So it's all, I think it's all really case by case. Yeah, I mean, Murph has um, has talked about this and written about this, about how Anthony Albanese's style of government is truly collaborative uh, and probably more so than we've seen in, in quite a few recent prime ministers in that he does trust ministers to run their own briefs uh, and that he tries not to interfere as much as possible. And we have seen that, as Josh says, um, in, in the way that a lot of the that summits have been handled where ministers have been able to go and and do their portfolio work overseas. So that has been quite noticeable. And I think that just further to Greg's question, and hi, Greg, I enjoy you on Twitter. I think that with this particular group of summits, it has been about repairing a lot of Australia's international relations that absolutely needed to be repaired. And because there was the prospect of that meeting with Xi Jinping, um, we did see Anthony Albanese just actually have to attend in person to make sure that happened. So that's all I would add to that answer. And Paul, question for you as our resident IR expert from Danny Philippa. Oh, it's my first time asking a question. How exciting. What are the chances the government's IR bill passes unchanged? Well, I guess the first point to make on this one is that it's already been changed quite a lot. Uh, There's already been about 150 amendments. Uh, Most, if not all of them, uh, were at the government's initiative. So they are improving the bill as they go along, which they're doing because of consultation with uh, employer groups and specifically uh, because of negotiations with Senator David Pocock, who is the swing vote. The Greens are in favour of the bill. The Coalition are against it. So they, they just need one more vote and it's Pocock that's, that's most likely. In terms of what happens now, uh, he has some concerns. He wants the single interest uh, stream to be split out and dealt with next year. So that's multi-employer pay deals, not for the lowest paid, but for the the next rung up, the people on middle incomes. And he also uh, wants to talk about the ability for unions to block a pay deal even being put to the workforce uh, for a vote under the enterprise agreement system. So he has some concerns. How it ends up, I mean, we could see a situation where the government uh, uses the Labor and Greens votes to block any amendments and just puts the whole thing to him and, you know, dares him to, to vote it up or down. Or we could see a situation where the government decides that, um, you know, getting most of it through, getting the low paid bargaining stream through all the gender pay equity measures, the flexible work, uh, the right to request flexible work and uh, appeal a rejection to the Fair Work Commission. They might decide that that's enough, enough wins to bank for now and they might come in with an amendment that splits out that section that Pocock wants dealt with next year. So I think they'll definitely get something through because he's being very constructive. He said that there's lots and lots in the bill that he likes. It's just a question now of whether in order to get that last that last bit that Tony Burke says is needed to get wages moving for people on middle incomes, whether they play a high risk you know, game of chicken in the Senate 
or wh- or whether they you know b- bank the win and come back to it next year. You um you went to David Pocock's latest town hall meeting. What were what were your feelings from that? Watching him and how he was talking to the community. Well, I think it was very interesting because Pocock clearly has a very progressive base. And uh, while, you know, some of the the union people in the audience might have been a bit coordinated in in turning up on the same night and giving him stick, you you sort of see it on social media as well, that with a very progressive base, a a lot of people urging him to pass it and questioning his his motives about um, why he's delaying other bits. He's criticised some of the the people attacking him on social media as lacking nuance. So he's clearly trying to resist uh, this pressure and and get what he sees as a better outcome. But at the end of the day, you know, if he likes most of the bill, maybe he'll just, maybe he'll just pass it. We'll see. Pocock also noted at the town hall that he's received a commitment from the government that the territory rights bill will get a vote. If there's just, you know, if there are government bills that he wants to vote up, then, you know, I think suddenly the objection to extra days will 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 fade away and, and we'll, we'll be back in early December. From those back channels, <laughs> it does seem like the objections to extra days are, are rapidly fading away. So we've even heard people, you know, ministers on uh, in their interviews to sort of go, well, if that's what the Senate needs to happen, Tony Burke being one of them, if that's what the Senate needs to do, then, you know, we would obviously support that in the House. Mm. So... Yay, December! (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, the next question, uh, pair of questions uh, is for Josh. Ashley McGinn from Cairns and a similar question from Greg Young are asking about fifth doses. They say, uh, with the new Moderna vaccine now available, will we be able to have a third booster shot before Christmas or will this Christmas, will we again be at risk from covid and Anne Novelly from Far North Queensland asks, why is the federal government and the states too pussyfooting around with public health rules and regulations in relation to the new waves of COVID? Why the leave it up to individuals approach? And I think mask mandates was one of the, one of the things that was mentioned that they could or should be doing in that question. All right, well, on the first one, to knock it over quickly, um, this week the Health Minister Mark Butler said no, that there wouldn't be a fifth shot or, or a, a third booster for the general population yet. Um, he said based on international evidence and findings that Australia's uh, immunisation experts haven't recommended it. Uh, you know, there is a lot of talk about Christmas and holidays and obviously last year we had the the awful sort of explosion of uh, Omicron cases and the rat test shortages and I think a lot of people had a pretty um, crummy Christmas and holiday season last year with that, you know, journalists, I've been in press conferences and asked these questions myself, you know, asking about what preparations are being made for the end of the year um, with holidays and crowds and travel and that sort of thing. The government is saying they are preparing the hospitals and aged care for surge workforce and PPE and masks and they're checking in with those vulnerable areas. So I don't think it is just a, a, a binary thing of like we either get more, you know, a fifth vaccine or this Christmas we're at risk. I mean, there are a lot, whole lot of other public health um, interventions and measures that, that can be taken. But even, you know, this week, the chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, essentially said that there would not likely be any sort of national uh, recommendations from people like himself um, that we put on big mask rules or or, or those sort of big, you know, public health interventions. I'm not sure about the pussyfooting around thing, though, in that second question. I mean, I, I think the current stance is that, uh, you know, a bit of recognition that people don't want or, or wouldn't follow 
the regulations that we had in 2020 or, or 2021. I mean, I think we've had this sort of question a couple of times on some of these podcasts and, um, you know, I, I think I'd ask the question, the question back, you know, what, what would you like to see that isn't being done now? I mean, we could put on mask rules or, um, you know, say you have to wear a mask when you go to the shops or public transport or that sort of thing. But I'm not sure how successful, um, some of those interventions would be. I think, I think we're, at, we're sort of past that phase of, you know, arresting people out of this problem or fining people into wearing masks and that sort of thing. Like I think I just think it's a, a sad sort of reality that people just wouldn't follow that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously it's scary if, if you're a person who's got health conditions or you're unwell or you're, you're a bit older or that sort of thing. But, you know, I think it's important to note as well that there's plainly the fact is that there's just zero, there's there's less than zero political appetite for this sort of thing again, for big restrictions. I mean, no one no one's pushing for it. Yeah, I I I would agree that that no one is pushing for it, but it, it is quite terrifying for people in, you know, uh, particularly the disability community who are just yeah. sort of saying you are playing Russian roulette with our lives. And it, it is quite limiting uh, for them because it definitely cuts down on places where they're safe. Uh, and if it cuts down on places when they're, where they're safe, then it cuts down on community. Uh, so there are wider aspects to this. And so while it is a case of personal responsibility, I don't think it would hurt if if we also just thought about, again, who we are protecting when we wear these masks. Because yes, there is antivirals and you know there are extra doses of the vaccine available now. But I think on from a human point of view, it's not necessarily about you getting the virus now, but somebody who really, really cannot afford to. Next topic uh, is uh, from Craig Richardson, and I'll direct this one to Amy. Um, if the RoboDebt inquiry identifies fault on individuals who pushed forward with the program despite being aware that it was illegal, will there be a potential for consequences including a custodial sentence or a significant fine? Or will there be no accountability for anyone involved? Why or why not? Uh, that's a tough one because while royal commissions can make recommendations, they can't actually charge anyone and they can't actually make a ruling on guilt. And so they can just sort of say, it is clear that this was the situation. Here are our recommendations. Uh, you can take them up or not. And then it would depend on whether there were any public prosecutors who could particularly, you know, take up the case if there was any potential for charges and that sort of thing. So I think most likely what we are going to see is recommendations for how this doesn't happen again in terms of safeguards that are put in place within uh, bureaucracies as well as from ministerial directions when it comes to legal advice, when it comes to rolling out programs, checking that, you know, it is legal, that there is not an onus where we're uh, we're putting guilt onto people and, and having them have to basically prove that they're not guilty rather than having the department prove the guilt, uh, those sorts of things. I don't think we're going to see a lot of consequences because when it comes to this sort of stuff, and it's, it's a failure of, of our systems, but when it does come to this sort of stuff, it, it's a little bit like catching smoke uh, ministers always have reasons or justifications or the fallback of they didn't know or they didn't see that, uh, you know, um, they didn't see that piece of advice and it, it's almost impossible to prove because it's not 
one person making a decision. There's a lot of people who have a lot to do with this, a lot of fingers in the pie. Uh, and and the way that those chains work means that plausible deniability is uh, is always used. Yeah. And uh, I think that there will be consequences in that the, the Royal Commission will make findings and some of those will be adverse to individuals about, you know, what they did know or didn't know about, whether it was lawful. And that will, uh, you know, curtail some until now glittering public service careers that, you know, people not going, getting promotions and, and not staying in the public service. Uh, I mean, there's a sort of uh, lock them up uh, vibe to this question, which uh, I think the important thing to note here is that the, the, the program was unlawful in the sense that income averaging was not a lawful basis to assert a debt. But I don't think there's any suggestion that that uh, is is criminal. So no, no, I don't think anyone's going to be locked up as a result of this. But I mean, th- there are other cases where ministers get sued individually. I mean, Labor's decision to shut down the live cattle export industry resulted in, in the minister being sued personally. So I mean, sometimes government decisions can be can be so egregious that, that, that individuals uh, can be sued personally, but where there's going to have to be a lot more evidence about uh, who knew what when before we can say what sort of findings the Royal Commission uh, would be making. And the, and the people that uh, this involved are among uh, some of the most financially vulnerable and don't necessarily have the resources to even go forth on any sort of civil route. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a case of a lot of people ignored a lot of warnings uh, and it was a horrible program that had terrible consequences not just for, you know, Australian society, but for for individuals as well. I think we'll go on to the last topic, which we've called elections. Um, And first, Mark has asked about fixed uh, terms. And he asks, other than senators uh, having eight-year terms, if we move to a fixed four-year term in the House of Representatives, what are the impediments to mandating a fixed uh, date for the election? Uh, Mark's advocating for no early elections and says, at the moment, it seems that most governments spend the last year of their term in office more or less campaigning. And last question for the day from Jim Maloney asks if we have any tips for the Victorian election. Uh, Josh, do you want to kick us off? Fixed terms or tips for the Victorian election? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think the fixed term thing would be good. I don't really see, I've always thought it was a a weird little anomaly in the system that like the Prime Minister can just sort of choose when he wants to hold an election somewhere in, you know, that that, uh, specific window that's set out in the legislation that has to be, you know, X amount of months before it's, you know, three years before the last one or have that complicated set of numbers. Um, I think there would still be a way to, this is how the US does it, isn't it? Like they they have fixed term elections, but like a a half Senate election every time. I think that wouldn't be too difficult to to line that up, but you have a the half Senate election every two elections or something like that on a fixed term basis. Um, I'm not sure that would change the last part of the question though about um, yeah, government spending the last year of their term campaigning. I think you know, if, if it was we have fixed term elections every you know November, the first week of November every three years, I think we'd still spend that last six months or nine months before that November election campaigning anyway. So I'm not sure that would change much, but I think I've always found the um, that that weird little thing where the prime minister can keep everyone waiting for the election date. Remember, remember this election? It was like, oh, Scott Morrison might call it today. Oh, actually, he's not going to call it today. Oh, we might do it next week. Oh, I thought that was. I hate the election guessing game stuff. So I, I would I would be very in favour of fixed term election. I think that'd be good. There was also that time that Julia Gillard declared the election 
18 months or something out to try and stop that sort of speculation, but it Mm. did not, which is on us, the media, because, you know, we get very, like, you know, heads full of um, heat over this sort of stuff. I do think that we do need four-year terms federally. Uh, We've seen a lot of the states go to four-year terms for particularly Mm. that reason that Mark is pointing out that, you know, that last year is spent, you know, in election uh, mode, which means that you've only really got two years to do anything agenda or policy changing. And people always do bring up the Senate. And so I think Josh's idea of, you know, just sort of if we can move it to like a half Senate election, that sort of thing, uh, that could potentially solve it. But I think the reason that it doesn't happen is because there's no real political appetite to ask people to go, would you give us another year? I mean, when Queensland went from three years to four-year fixed terms, the uh, Attorney General at the time and the Shadow Attorney General had to embark on this massive road trip together where they basically were like, vote yes at the next election to fixed four-year terms because it's going to be better for you. And it was, in the lead-up to it, it was a close thing because people think, well, if we hate this government, we want to be able to get them out within three years. What? Why should we have to wait for four? So that seems to be the thing that politicians don't want to press their luck on being given extra time. I think part of it too is that the, 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 the Prime Minister, like when you think about it, like if we were going to go to fixed four-year terms, it would actually the government makes that choice. And the government currently, whoever the government is, has the choice of going to the election whenever they find it to be most politically convenient. Like, you know, I, I think they, they currently have the power to go, okay, we can have this election anytime in what, so like a six or nine-month window at the end of their term or whatever it is. Like if they, if it has to be November or it has to be, you know, the first week of November every three years or what, well, four years or whatever whatever the, the fixed term might be, that sort of takes away their, their power, their, their sort of element of surprise or, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to line all these beautiful things up so that we can have this great election day and we've got all these, you know, lovely policies all rolling out and the other team, the other side doesn't get a chance to sort of, they're always have to kind of be always ready to go at a moment's notice sort of thing, whereas the government can set their things up and go, okay, nine months, we're going to go to election, whereas the opposition has to sort of live in hope and wait for all this time. So I think it would be optimistic to ask a government of the day to give up a, a pretty big uh, trump card they have in their pockets. Agree. Incumbent won't give up incumbency <laughs> advantage. And and just one boring uh, constitutional note, it does actually say three <laughs> years in the constitution. Yeah, so you'd so, have to go to a referendum. Yeah, and we've got we've got to do the voice first and then yeah. uh, I think the Republic uh, people would be pissed off if this if anyone was spending political capital just on, on this. Just add an extra question onto so, the form. So you know, two for one. This is a real <laughs> third, third term constitutional uh, type change. Uh, just on like an incumbents though, I do remember when Gary Campbell Newman called uh, the second Queensland election that he stood for. He surprised even his own cabinet who had gone on holidays and uh, quite a few of them had to make mercy dashes back from overseas (laughs) because he didn't give any warning. He was like, election now. Um, And he is no longer in government. So (laughs) doesn't always go to plan. Last one, tips for the Victorian election. Josh? Oh, I don't think I don't think you have to be a real political savant to say that I don't think the Liberal Party is going to win the election in Victoria. Um, I, I'm obviously very interested in you know that the, there's talk that again, like it might be similar to the federal election, maybe the one, you know, a very low turnout um, for the the major parties or low vote share for the major parties. Um, uh, how many independents get up and that sort of thing. I'm fascinated by all the, the little like micro parties in Victoria, and is that story in the Herald Sun today about um, you know 
know, the group voting tickets and preference whisperer, Glenn Drury and all that sort of thing. So um, I think it's very difficult to predict those sort of um, outcomes of Victoria with the electoral system they've got. But um, I, I don't think Dan Andrews is going anywhere. Uh, I, I don't think that Labor will lose the election just because it seems like a too big a mountain for, you know, the opposition to climb. But I'm also not on the ground in Victoria, so it makes it very difficult to sort of <laughs> to sort of pick the mood. Uh, and I don't think social media on this particular case is is a good litmus test because it is quite partisan. And and so you just kind of like, what it, what is happening for all those people who don't feel as passionately about it? Where are those votes going to go? Yeah, I, I think the Liberals have made an interesting call in that they're going to preference the Greens ahead of Labor, which could help them win seats uh, like Albert Park, uh, Richmond and, and Northcote. I mean, that, that's how Adam Bant first entered the lower house federally, is that the Liberals uh, preference the Greens ahead of Labor. If you follow a How to Vote card, we are putting that caveat in, you know, yes. just saying for the people who follow How to Vote Pe- cards. People can cast their own vote, but enough people follow the card that that, that, that can make the difference. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you really need to see Libs uh, flipping a lot more Labor seats to see a change of government. And other than a few... Uh, you know, blue ribbon seats coming back that they that Labor won in the huge wave last time. I'm 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 not sure that that groundswell is there. Although health does seem to be a pretty strong um, touchstone in the Victorian election, and that could tip over a couple of those you know former blue seats back heading back that way because people really care about their healthcare systems and understandably so. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us for this Ask Me Anything episode of Australian Politics. I think we'll have uh, Catherine Murphy back next week. It's the final sitting fortnight of Parliament, so she'll have her choice of victims for the, uh, <laughs> uh, for the, for the interview format of, 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 the, of the politics podcast. Thanks uh, very much for, for having us. And thanks to Alison Chan for her help this week and to M. Waterson and Daniel Simo. The executive producer of Australian politics is Molly Glassy. Thanks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.